I would ask you to open your Bibles again today to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews and the 12th chapter. And as you're turning there, let me ask you. If you were speaking to one who was tempted to apostatize for whatever reason, toying with casting off the faith, how, how would you address that person? What would you say? If it was you yourself that you're tempted or tempted to a serious moral lapse of some kind, toying with it, what do you say to yourself? How would you deal with yourself? What arguments would you bring uh, to your own heart and mind as to matters that should arrest you from the wrong and more uh, matters upon which you should focus in order to do that which is right before God? What, what truths would you press on your own heart? Or maybe it's a more subtle declension, a weariness in the way, or worldliness, or compromising. What would you, or maybe I should say, what do you bring to your mind's eye to stop a wrong course and to shore up your faith, your love, your obedience, so as to go and stay in the right course? Now, obviously, this is not just theoretical here, right? It's not just, well, it's something we can kind of speculate about. No, our brethren, and for that matter, we ourselves, we face temptations. We face various kinds of struggles. And as we've seen in Hebrews chapter 12 in the past, that we're all obligated to be looking carefully against such problems. Notice verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 12. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be in uh, any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright, you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance. That is, no place for changing Isaac's mind, not his repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Well, that word looking carefully, the only other occurrence, I pointed this out recently, uh, is found in 1 Peter 5, 2, where pastors are to serve as overseers. So it's the idea of how shepherds would be looking after guarding the flock against dangers. But here it's not simply addressed to pastors, as you'll recall. Rather, for all of us, we're to be looking carefully, lest there be these spiritual problems in our midst. Uh, all are to uh, correct or to prevent these things from happening. That is, we are to uh, watch against uh, false professors or temporary believers uh, who would fall short of salvation, uh, though they would be in the ranks among God's people. And then any bitter root of heresy that troubles the church that may uh, infect or defile those who would listen to it. And then all are called to guard against any fornicator or profane person like Esau. That is, 
those who would disregard God, those who would live as the godless, uh, though they're in the covenant community and they know truth about God, yet basically they're entirely carnal, they're worldly because they're at heart, they're worldling, they love this world, the things of this world, they care nothing about the things spiritual and the things of God. Well, that was kind of like Esau, fornicators proved much the same by what they pursue. Well, this in Hebrews 12, 15 through 17, as you recall, it's first a call to each one of us to guard our hearts with all diligence, as Proverbs 4.23 tells us. Uh, it's a call to a serious self-watch. Make sure that this does not describe you, that you have no tendency towards this. But then at the same time, it's a call uh, to each other to be our brother's keeper, to help one another uh, so as not to fall prey to any of these or to be on any of these paths of, to apostasy, not to put the pinky on it to keep our brethren from doing so. You remember how already in Hebrews chapter 3 he talked about beware lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief, but exhorting one another daily. That is by word uh, aiding one another to keep from going that way. Or so too in Hebrews chapter 10 about not forsaking the assembling ourselves together, but in that connection he says consider one another uh, to stir up love and good works, exhorting one another. Uh, well, that's what we're to do. We're to speak, as we saw last week from Ephesians 4.15, to speak truth in love to one another so as to edify. Not just being honest, but speaking God's truth. So I come back to the question I asked before. How would you address those who are tempted to go in a wrong way, even these dangers that we have before us in Hebrews 12.15-17? through 17? What truths would you bring to bear? Now, of course, there are many. Uh, biblical promises, motivations, the threats. But this afternoon, we're looking at that which is employed by the writer of Hebrews, that which God has communicated through him, and especially that long sentence that we have that runs from 12.18 to verse 24. This is clearly joined to what we've just looked at. Notice the first word of verse 18. For. Since. Take care that you, your brethren, are not those who would fall short or uh, no root of bitterness springing up, no Esau or fornicator. Because. For. Since. So there's clearly a connection. Now, perhaps in our mind, we would then be ready to apply those words of verses 18 through 21 about the people there at Sinai who came to that mountain that could be touched, who were there, as you notice in verse 18, uh, that burned with fire and blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken of them anymore. The frightening visual and the frightening audio that took place there. What they're seeing, what they're hearing. This trumpet that gets louder and louder as it blows. And then you've got the voice of words. God uh, speaking from heaven the Ten Commandments. And well, we can understand their response, how they're trembling, how they're terrified. And uh, even Moses, the mediator, we go on to see here, uh, he, he was afraid and trembling at these things. 
Albert Barnes, the commentator, said every circumstance that occurred, occurred there was suited to fill the soul with terror. And again, this is all in connection with the giving of the law. It goes right into Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. And it was to impress upon them the seriousness of the law, as well as the seriousness of their standing before a holy God. And by the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so what we could call the terrors of the law were gripping. It required perfect obedience. It gave no power to obey. Well, it's the law then, it's the, ten, it's the old covenant rather, that is called the ministry of of condemnation by the laws and knowledge of sin that every mouth should be stopped the whole world guilty before God well they got that they understand they're trembling to again quote Barnes the circumstances were designed to keep the people of God there that day from apostasy as we see in Exodus 20 Moses says God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin that's what that great phenomenon so here's the law being pressed upon them that they may not sin because all sins against this holy God is serious. Well, is that how you would then address someone who's toying with apostasy? Would it be this that you'd bring to bear in the face of that tendency? If you saw any of these things falling short, bitter root, like an Esau. Is that how you deal with your own heart? when you see these or other spiritual maladies in order to arrest your sin and your slipping or your declension do you do so with the terrors of the law the threatenings that you have in God's word and what sin is before God and against a holy God who cannot be indifferent to these things is that how you deal with yourself okay, can I say there's some legitimacy to that Okay. I mean, notice what the writer of Hebrews goes on to say at verse 28, uh, or sorry, verse 29 of Hebrews 12, for our God is a consuming fire. And that's actually a quote from Deuteronomy 4.24. Moses spoke that in connection with rehearsing for them the giving of the law and all these phenomena that we've seen here. So our God's a consuming fire. That, that's very right. Remember how he has dealt with apostasy here. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Or even when he's here talking about a fornicator, he goes on to say, verse 4, that uh, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So the writer does press such truths as this, the terrors of the law, etc., uh, on them. Scripture does this. And it's quite right, both for the unsaved, but also for the saved. That Wait a minute, see what sin is. But I say all that to say, but notice closely what's going on in this passage that is our focus. This is not the line of reasoning that the writer of Hebrews presses. That's not what he follows with. Looking carefully, lest there be any of these problems, for, notice verse 18 again, you have not come. You've not come to that mountain that may be touched and burned with fire, etc., looking carefully, because this is not us. We're not now standing before Mount Sinai. Rather, verse 22, this is us, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, 
to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. We've not come to Sinai. We've not come to those Old Testament realities represented there. We've come to Mount Zion and all of these new covenant realities and a very different experience than what they knew as they stood before Sinai. And he says, you have come to these things. It's a perfect tense. It speaks of an accomplished fact with a continuing state. You've come and are still there. This is where you are. These blessings. This is you. You're a true believer on Christ. Well, you're joined to this people. And being joined to this people, that means these blessings are no less yours. Well, have we come to Christ, the mediator of that new covenant? Have we really come to him? Then all the blessings of the new covenant are ours, right? Uh, that the law written on our hearts, that we know God, that our sins and trespasses remembered no more. Uh, or Second Corinthians 3, that uh, great new covenant fullness of the giving of the Spirit. This is ours right now. You have come to the mediator. And because of the mediator, because of that uh, blood of sprinkling that established this covenant and secured all of its blessings as a certainty, his death in our place. And therefore, we can look death in the face and know of a certainty that we will surely be among those of 1223 when we die. The spirits of just men made perfect. The body goes to the ground, but the spirit, well, to depart and be with Christ far better, uh, absent of the body, present with the Lord. Because, as we said in that previous hour, we are now, just as them, we are the just. We are those who are perfectly righteous uh, in Jesus Christ, being justified by faith. Uh, Christ, the one who knew no sin, was regarded and treated as sin, that we should be made the righteousness of God in him. It's God who, who condemns. It's God who justifies, Paul says. Well, being declared and treated as immutably, as perfectly righteous in Christ, even by God, the judge of all, then it is altogether certain uh, for us, uh, then as it is for those just, uh, those uh, spirits of just men made perfect right now. Remember the hymn uh, number 99, more happy but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. That we're so ransomed, that we're so reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Well, we now await the time eagerly when he comes to complete that glorious work. But more, we are now so joined to Christ's people that we are the church of the firstborn. That is those in that special privileged position being joined to him who is called the firstborn in Romans 8, 29. And we forever share his blessedness. Now, we already have the status of joint heirs with Christ right now. And the day comes that we will be glorified together with him. This is certain because we have come to this. We have come. It's already ours in Christ. And so we now have such acceptance with God uh, as uh, even uh, those innumerable angels that are in his presence. Well, we have that acceptance and beyond. Uh, you know how we're told in Hebrews to draw near to God with a holy 
boldness because of our high priest or that text I've often referred to Hebrews 10 14 about by that one offering we've been perfected forever and again remember the contrast how so entirely different are we from those who stood before Mount Sinai at the giving of the law and terrified were they at the audio and the uh, visual that was before them and it's all testifying to God is holy and they are not. That the law, uh, the seriousness of it, the terrors of the law, so to speak. Well, the emphasis here for us is on quite another emotion, on great joy. The, the festal gathering, uh, that's what is intended by that general assembly. A, a joyful gathering before God and with God. You know, Peter's not talking about the future when he wrote in 1 Peter 1.8 that we now rejoice with a joy unspeakable and full of glory. It's a glory like unto what we will have, albeit in greater degree then. But already he's saying, we, this is how we now rejoice. Even in the midst of things that grieve us, he says, no, we greatly rejoice in our future because it's so certain. Well, that's not unlike what the writer of Hebrews is underscoring here. And this is you, dear brother, dear sister. Because of that mediator of the new covenant and that sprinkling of blood and we have come to him and therefore all of this is true of us our blessedness these are new covenant realities that are now ours in Christ our present status our great privilege that of all of Christ's people whether you feel like it or not doesn't matter it's yours whether you're like those Christians to whom this was originally written who are waffling. Doesn't matter. It's still theirs. Whether you yourself are struggling with doubts or when we sin. Dear brother, dear sister, this is still us. This is still ours. We have come. All those who believe on Christ right now. It's entirely certain. To so experience we're to so experience something of this right now that we live like it and that is why the writer writes these things this is not just simply let me file this away somewhere for the future reference no remember the connection look carefully so you don't have any of these on the road to apostasy any one of these roads to apostasy for we've not come to Mount Sinai We've come to Mount Zion and have all of these things now. That's the line of reasoning. That word for, to me, is very remarkable. You're tempted to fall short? Prove to be a temporary believer because you've got a tendency to draw back? No, no. See, you've already come to Mount Zion. Don't do that. See how blessed you are. Maybe you're tempted to embrace, to give your ear to this bitter root of heresy, some terrible false teaching. No, see what is already true of you and embrace the truth. Or maybe you're tempted to be a fornicator like those, First uh, Thessalonians 4, who don't know God, who just conduct themselves in the passion of their lust. No, but you do know God. You've been brought into this relationship just as surely as the saints in heaven so you know him if in any way you're tempted to be like an Esau 
loving this world and despising spiritual privileges? See what you have. See what is yours. Why will you do that? Why would you draw back? Why would you put a pinky, a toe, a little toe on the road to heresy or to, I mean, apostasy? This is how the writer's dealing with them here in Hebrews 12. This is the word of him who has brought them into such blessedness. Here's how God would have them think. How God would have us think. If these things in verses 15 through 17, that's not your temptations. Yet this applies no less to you and what you do face, your temptations. What would draw your heart away? What would slow you down? What would dull you? Listen to the words of Albert Barnes. He summed this up so well. The main point of the comparison that we're looking at here, right, between those of Mount Sinai and those of Mount Zion, the main point of the comparison is that under the Jewish dispensation, everything was adapted to all the mind and to restrain by the exhibition of grandeur and of power. But that under the Christian dispensation, while there was as much that was sublime, there was much more that was adapted to win and hold the affections. See that there's none of this because look what is ours by the grace of God through the mediator. Recognize our absolute blessedness. Or I think it might have been John Owen who used the language of gospel motives. Right? Keeping the heart stocked well with gospel motives. That is recognizing the blessedness that is ours. A far higher and more effective motivation to persevere, to obey, than are the terrors of the law. Yeah, at times we're pressed with, it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Our God's a consuming fire. But wait a minute, that's not the great uh, ethos here. No, it's pressing on. And certainly not pressing on so as to be saved. Oh, I've got to get saved. No, pressing on. Because we are saved with this great and glorious salvation that's ours by this loving and glorious Savior. We've come to the mediator of this new covenant. And so the writer is saying, here are the new covenant realities that are yours. Now live consistently with them. This is what you have. Now live like it. Which will mean not going the way of apostasy, but rather quite the opposite. That is the Christian life. Again, it's not that we don't need to hear uh, rebukes and the like, okay? But it's this that is to really drive us on, the heart stocked with gospel motives. Well, is it so with you? You're melted that Christ would love you. You're overwhelmed by the grace of God to you. You marvel that already this blessedness is yours. That you are as secure right now as those uh, saints in heaven. And you are loved right now, not simply as are the saints in heaven, but as Jesus said, that we are loved as he is loved by the Father. Does that not melt you? Does that have no pull on your heart and your conscience? Are your affections held by this glorious salvation and all of its blessings that we've looked at here? Your affection is held by Christ himself who loves you and gave himself for you. Is that really what holds you? 
Is that what drives you? You understand Paul's language? This really registers. It's not like, oh no, if I do something wrong, something nasty is going to happen. But it's like, we judge thus. The love of Christ constrains or controls us. One died for all. We died that we shouldn't live now for us, but for him. And it's that love of Christ for you that compels that. Well, that's something of the uh, mindset here that the writer of Hebrews is pushing upon us. What does it make you want to do? This glorious salvation. The writer of Hebrews assumes this is the way to press them with running with endurance the race that is set before them. For us to love him who first loved us. To promote gratitude. Or in recognizing that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. To purify himself his own special people. His own special treasure. Zealous for good works. Well, if I recognize that, what should it make me be but zealous for good works to show my love for him? Has the Lord Jesus, did the Lord Jesus not woo you and win you with his love? You know, Wanda's testimony, that was certainly the case, hearing of the gospel and of Christ suffering and dying. He did that for me. He would so love me. I, I, I can't be indifferent. I can't do nothing. Well, how about with you? I must confess in me it was more the terrors of the law. But then afterwards, oh, now, the Savior would love me. Does that hold your heart? Does it win and keep, hold your affections, gospel motives? Because that's the lesson here from this passage. Don't go the way of the apostles. Guard your heart and look after one another. Because look what we have. We're not standing before Sinai. We're standing before God in his Zion. And all the realities that come with the new covenant, they are ours. Well, brethren, the design is that we should not simply hang on, but that we, out of gratitude, out of love, we run with endurance the race. And we flourish in Christ and greatly enjoy right now what is ours in him. How are we doing? How are we doing? Recognize our status. Recognize our privilege. But now to aid this, there's one more uh, matter that we must note about the contrast in this sentence. Remember now, this is all one sentence. You've not come to uh, the mountain that may be touched. You've come to Mount Zion. Well, there's one more contrast. And it is those words in verse 18. Notice again, Hebrews 12, 18. You have not come to the mountain that may be touched. That is, you've not come to a physical and very visible mountain. In the same way that we've not come simply to the externals of the old covenant, the sacrifices and the ceremonies and the tabernacle and the like. Rather, that to which we've come, these are unseen realities. Verse uh, 22 again, but you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, etc. But these are unseen realities. We've now come to this innumerable company of angels. Well, are you seeing them? No, it's probably a good job you're not. You scare the liver out of you. Right? We've come to the spirits of just men made perfect. 
Well, are we seeing them? Again, probably scare us if we did. No, no. We've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Were we seeing it? Our names are registered there. Well, have you seen it? Well, no. This thing's unseen. Not the mountain that may be touched, but these invisible realities of the new covenant. We don't see the whole of the church universal. And looking at what we do see of the church universal, we think that's the church of the firstborn. may not always look like it. But that is her status. These are not things that can now be touched. But they're no less real. And that is the point here. As to that uh, which they came, yeah, that was very real when they stood there before Mount Sinai, the trim, the, uh, the tempest and the, the uh, uh, darkness, and at the same time the fire and that uh, increasing uh, loudness of that trumpet. That was all very real to them. They could see it. Well, we don't have the visible but it's to be no less it is no less real and it's to be so to us are these realities as real to us as were those things to those people who stood at that mountain that may be touched well they ought to be I mean talks about coming to God himself that's the picture is he that real to us could it be that as they stood before Mount Sinai they hear that uh, audible voice that that was more real to them than God now is to us in his word in the new covenant our acceptance with him their uh, having to stay at a distance was very real to them well how about our acceptance by God is that very real to us that's the contrast here and the writer affirms not simply that it could possibly be real but it should be real that these truths that we're looking at, that to which we have come, Mount Zion, see the living God, etc., is to be so real to us in our thinking. It's very gripping and causing us to live as we ought. Don't go the way of the heretics. Don't go the way of Esau. Don't go the way, because look at what we have. Go the opposite way. It's to be gripped. Well, how is that to happen? Well, it's because of faith. Though we don't see these things with the natural eye, uh, we see them with faith. That is the writer, remember Hebrews 11, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The emphasis there in Hebrews 11 about seeing the invisible, even enduring and seeing him who is invisible. Well, that's what faith does. We can't see these things with the natural eye, but because they are true, they're in God's word, God has told us, and even though we don't feel like it, don't see it physically, uh, may even question, oh, what the hell, look at the church, it doesn't look like firstborn. Yet faith sees and believes. Notice the language in 2 Corinthians 4. I know you're familiar with 2 Corinthians 5, 7 where it talks about we walk by faith not by sight. Well that follows on what Paul has just said, verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 4. While we do not look at the things which are seen but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary but the things which are not seen are eternal. These invisible realities, he says, we're looking on purpose. This is what we see. How? Well, we walk by faith. We see him with the eye of faith. And so it is, brethren. It's for us, these very blessings that we've uh, seen now 
in Hebrews chapter 12 are to be so real to our faith that we see them, that we contemplate them, that we deliberately look and focus upon them, that they then are lived out. I mean, what, what, what could possibly matter more than these blessings? Uh, what could be preferred over my present blessedness? Sin and its temptations? Going back to Old Covenant Judaism? What could it all be uh, compared with knowing God and embracing Christ now in such a way that he should be so real and so precious and loving him who first loved us? Well, these blessings that we've looked at now twice today, verses 22 through 20, are they real that we've come to this Mount Zion? Is this all real? Church of the firstborn. Is this all real? Not seen, but it's real. Well, then believe it. And be so occupied with it by faith, so seeing it by faith on purpose, that we live consistent with this. A heart stocked with gospel motives, melted by the love of Jesus Christ. Our affections won and held by such glorious realities, by such a glorious Savior. Oh, my God, help us. Are you gripped? Ought to be. Let's be. Now, I will say that which I've read from 2 Corinthians 4, it certainly does describe, it does not describe the unsaved person. They're looking at things unseen. No, all they see is what's there before them. There's no looking at things unseen or uh, no thought about things eternal. We're told in 2 Corinthians 4, a reason for that is because the God of this age has blinded them so they cannot see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If that speaks of you, you're without Christ, you're blind, you're not seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ. Will you let Satan keep you and hold you blind all the way to your own damnation? But what can you do? You can't make yourself see. You can't overcome Satan. But there's one who can and has and does. And God commands the light to shine into our own darkness that we should behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. When I think of sinners being described in Scripture as blind, that is, spiritually blind, it makes you think, doesn't it, of some of these individuals who are physically blind, like Bartimaeus or others, crying out to Jesus, Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy upon me. Heal my blindness. He didn't. Well, so, those who are yet blinded by the God of this age, you can't make yourself see, but you can cry out to one who can. He's rich to all who call upon him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. With this great salvation that is set before us here. Amen. Go to Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for so great salvation and we thank you for that mediator of the new covenant uh, who by the blood of sprinkling that is his own shed blood has secured for us most certainly this rich blessedness we ask that you would help us to be more mindful of these things especially when we're tempted to dullness or distracted or uh, other things that would draw us away and certainly anything that would draw us back from you oh that we would recognize that to which we have now come and what is ours in Christ. 
It's in his name we pray. Amen.